Section 13 of The Call of the Canyon by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Part 1. The day came when Carly asked Mrs. Hutter, Will you please put up a nice lunch for Glenn and me? I'm going to walk down to his farm where he's working and surprise him. That's a downright fine idea, declared Mrs. Hutter, and forthwith bustled away to comply with Carly's request. So presently Carly found herself carrying a bountiful basket on her arm, faring forth on an adventure that both thrilled and depressed her. Long before this hour, something about Glenn's work had quickened her pulse and given rise to an inexplicable admiration. That he was big and strong enough to do such labor made her proud. That he might want to go on doing it made her ponder and brood. The morning resembled one of those rare eastern days in June, when the air appeared flooded by rich, thick amber light. Only the sun here was hotter and the shade cooler. Carly took the trail below where the West Fork emptied its golden-green waters into Oak Creek. The red walls seemed to dream and wait under the blaze of the sun. The heat lay like a blanket over the still foliage. The birds were quiet. Only the murmuring stream broke the silence of the canyon. Never had Carly felt more the isolation and solitude of Oak Creek Canyon. Far indeed from the maddening crowd. Only Carly's stubbornness kept her from acknowledging the sense of peace that enveloped her. That and the consciousness of her own discontent. What would it be like to come to this canyon, to give up to its enchantments? That, like many another disturbing thought, had to go unanswered, to be driven into the closed chambers of Carly's mind, there to germinate subconsciously and stalk forth some day to overwhelm her. The trail led along the creek, threading a maze of boulders, passing into the shade of cottonwoods, and crossing sun-flecked patches of sand. Carly's every step seemed to become slower. Regrets were assailing her. Long indeed she had overstayed her visit to the West. She must not linger there indefinitely. And mingled with misgiving was a surprise that she had not tired of Oak Creek. In spite of all and the dislike she vaunted to herself, the truth stared at her. She was not tired. The long-delayed visit to see Glenn working on his own farm must result in her talking to him about his work, and in a way not quite clear, she regretted the necessity for it, to disapprove of Glenn. She received faint intimations of wavering, of uncertainty, of vague doubt, but these were cried down by the dominant and habitual voice of her personality. Presently, through the shaded and shadowed breath of the belt of forest, she saw gleams of a sunlit clearing and crossing this space to the border of trees, she peered forth, hoping to espy Glenn at his labors. She saw an old shack and irregular lines of rude fence built of poles of all sizes and shapes, and several plots of bare yellow ground leading up toward the west side of the canyon wall. Could this clearing be Glenn's farm? Surely she had missed it, or had not gone far enough. This was not a farm, but a slash in the forested level of the canyon floor, bare and somehow hideous. Dead trees were standing in the lots. They had been ringed deeply at the base by an axe to kill them and so prevent their foliage from shading the soil. 
Carley saw a long pile of rocks that evidently had been carried from the plowed ground. There was no neatness, no regularity, although there was abundant evidence of toil. To clear that rugged space, to fence it and plow it, appeared at once to Carley an extremely strenuous and useless task. Carley persuaded herself that this must be the plot of ground belonging to the herder Charlie, and she was about to turn on down the creek when far up under the bluff she espied a man. He was stalking along and bending down, stalking along and bending down. She recognized Glenn. He was planting something in the yellow soil. Curiously, Carley watched him and did not allow her mind to become concerned with the somewhat painful swell of her heart. What a stride he had! How vigorous he looked and earnest! He was as intent upon this job as if he had been a rustic. He might have been failing to do it well, but he most certainly was doing it conscientiously. Once he had said to her that a man should never be judged by the result of his labors, but by the nature of his effort. A man might strive with all his heart and strength, yet fail. Carley watched him striding along and bending down, absorbed in his task, unmindful of the glaring hot sun, and somehow to her singularly detached from life wherein she had once moved, and to which she yearned to take him back. Suddenly, an unaccountable flashing query assailed her conscience. How dare she want to take him back? She seemed as shocked as if some stranger had accosted her. What was this dimming of her eyes, this inward tremulousness, this damned tide beating at the unknown and riveted gate of her intelligence? She felt more then than she dared to face. She struggled against something in herself. The old habit of mind instinctively resisted the new, the strange. But she did not come off wholly victorious. The Carly Birch, whom she recognized as of old, passionately hated this life and work of Glenn Kilbourne's. But the rebel self, an unaccountable and defiant Carly, loved him all the better for them. Carly drew a long, deep breath before she called Glenn. This meeting would be momentous, and she felt no absolute surety of herself. Manifestly, he was surprised to hear her call, and dropping his sack and implement, he hurried across the tilled ground, sending up puffs of dust. He vaulted the rude fence of poles, and upon sight of her called out lustily. How big and virile he looked! Yet he was gaunt and strained. It struck Carly that he had not looked so upon her arrival at Oak Creek. Had she worried him? The query gave her a pang. "'Sir Tiller of the field,' said Carley gaily. "'See your dinner. I brought it, and I'm going to share it.' "'The old darling,' he replied, and gave her an embrace that left her cheek moist with the sweat of his. He smelled of dust and earth, and his body was hot. I wish to God it could be true for always.' His loving bearish onslaught and his words quite silenced Carley. How at critical moments he always said the thing that hurt her or inhibited her. She essayed a smile as she drew back from him. It's sure good of you, he said, taking the basket. I was thinking I'd be through work sooner today and was sorry I had not made a date with you. Come, we'll find a place to sit. Whereupon he led her back under the trees to a half sunny, half shady bench of rock overhanging the stream. Great pines overshadowed a still, eddying pool. A number of brown butterflies hovered over the water, and small trout 
floated like spotted feathers just under the surface. Drowsy summer enfolded the sylvan scene. Glenn knelt at the edge of the brook, and plunging his hands in, he splashed like a huge dog and bathed his hot face and head, and then turned to Carly with gay words and laughter while he wiped himself dry with a large red scarf. Carly was not proof against the virility of him then, and at the moment, no matter what it was that had made him the man he looked, she loved it. I'll sit in the sun, he said, designating a place. When you're hot, you mustn't rest in the shade, unless you've a coat or sweater. But you sit here in the shade. Glenn, that'll put us too far apart, complained Carly. I'll sit in the sun with you. The delightful simplicity and happiness of the ensuing hour was something Carly believed she would never forget. There, we've licked the platter clean, she said. What starved bears we were. I wonder if I shall ever enjoy eating when I get home. I used to be so finicky and picky. Carly, don't talk about home, said Glenn, appealingly. You dear old farmer, I'd love to stay here and just dream forever, replied Carly earnestly. But I came on a purpose to talk seriously. Oh, you did? About what? he returned, with some quick, indefinable change of tone and expression. Well, first about your work. I know I hurt your feelings when I wouldn't listen, but I wasn't ready. I wanted to, to just be gay with you for a while. Don't think I wasn't interested, I was. And now I'm ready to hear all about it and everything. She smiled at him bravely, and she knew that unless some unforeseen shock upset her composure, she would be able to conceal from him anything which might hurt his feelings. You do look serious, he said, with keen eyes on her. Just what are your business relations with Hutter, she inquired. I'm simply working for him, replied Glenn. My aim is to get an interest in his sheep, and I expect to some day. We have some plans, and one of them is the development of that deep lake section. You remember, you were with us. The day Spillbeans spilled you. Yes, I remember. It was a pretty place, she replied. Carly did not tell him that for a month past she had owned the deep lake section of 640 acres. She had, in fact, instructed Hutter to purchase it and to keep the transaction a secret for the present. Carly had never been able to understand the impulse that prompted her to do it. But as Hutter had assured her it was a remarkably good investment on very little capital, she had tried to persuade herself of its advantages. Back of it all had been an irresistible desire to be able some day to present to Glenn this ranch site he loved. She had concluded he would never wholly disassociate himself from this West, and as he would visit it now and then, she had already begun forming plans of her own. She could stand a month in Arizona at long intervals. Hutter and I will go into cattle raising some day, went on Glenn, and that deep lake place is what I want for myself. What work are you doing for Hutter? asked Carly. Anything from building fence to cutting timber, laughed Glenn. I've not yet the experience to be a foreman like Lee Stanton. Besides, I have a little business all my own. I put all my money in that. You mean here, this, this farm? Yes, and the stock I'm raising. You see, I have to feed corn. And believe me, Carly, those cornfields represent some job. I can well believe that, replied Carly. You, you looked it. Oh, the hard work is over. 
All I have to do now is to plant and keep the weeds out. Glenn, do sheep eat corn? I plant corn to feed my hogs. Hogs? she echoed vaguely. Yes, hogs, he said, with quiet gravity. The first day you visited my cabin, I told you I raised hogs, and I fried my own ham for your dinner. Is that what you, you put your money in? Yes, and Hutter says I've done well. Hogs, ejaculated Carly, aghast. My dear, are you growing dull of comprehension, retorted Glenn. H-O-G-S. He spelled the word out. I'm in the hog-raising business, and pretty blamed well pleased over my success so far. Carly caught herself in time to quell outwardly a shock of amaze and revulsion. She laughed and exclaimed against her stupidity. The look of Glenn was no less astounding than the content of his words. He was actually proud of his work. Moreover, he showed not the least sign that he had any idea such information might be startlingly obnoxious to his fiancée. Glenn, it's so, so queer, she ejaculated, that you, Glenn Kilbourne, should ever go in for, for hogs. It's unbelievable. How'd you ever, ever happen to do it? By heaven, you're hard on me, he burst out in sudden, dark, fierce passion. How'd I ever happen to do it? What was there left for me? I gave my soul and my heart and body to the government, to fight for my country. I came home a wreck. What did my government do for me? What did my employers do for me? What did the people I fought for do for me? Nothing. So help me God, nothing. I got a ribbon and a bouquet, a little applause for an hour, and then the sight of me sickened my countrymen. I was broken and used. I was absolutely forgotten. My body, my life, my soul meant all to me. My future was ruined, but I wanted to live. I had killed men who had never harmed me, and I was not fit to die. I tried to live, so I fought out my battle alone, alone. No one understood, no one cared. I came west to keep from dying of consumption in sight of the indifferent mob for whom I had sacrificed myself. I chose to die on my feet, away off alone somewhere. But I got well. And what made me well, and saved my soul, was the first work that offered, raising and tending hogs. The dead whiteness of Glenn's face, the lightning scorn of his eyes, the grim stark strangeness of him then had for Carly a terrible harmony with this passionate denunciation of her, of her kind, of the America for whom he had lost all. Oh, Glenn, forgive me, she faltered. I was only talking. What do I know? Oh, I'm blind, blind and little. But she could not bear to face him for a moment, and she hung her head. Her intelligence seemed concentrating swift, wild thoughts round the shock to her consciousness. By that terrible expression of his face, by those thundering words of scorn, would she come to realize the mighty truth of his descent into the abyss and his rise to the heights? Vaguely, she began to see an awful sense of her deadness, of her soul-blighting selfishness, began to dawn upon her as something monstrous out of dim, gray obscurity. She trembled under the reality of thoughts that were not new. How she had babbled about Glenn and the crippled soldiers. How she had imagined she sympathized. But she had only been a vain, worldly, complacent, effusive little fool. She had here the shock of her life 
and she sensed a greater one impossible to grasp carley that was coming to you said glenn presently with deep heavy expulsion of breath i only know i love you more more she cried wildly looking up and wanting desperately to throw herself in his arms i guess you do a little he replied sometimes i feel you are a kid then again you represent the world your world with this age-old custom it's unalterable but carley let's get back to my work yes yes exclaimed carley gladly i'm ready to to go pet your hogs anything by george i'll take you up he declared i bet you won't go near one of my hog pens lead me to it she replied with a hilarity that was only a nervous reversion of her state well maybe i'd better hedge on my bet he said laughing again you have more in you than i suspect you sure fooled me when you stood for the sheep dip but come on i'll take you anyway end of chapter seven part one